as a Christian in this life, will you suffer less than a non-Christian? As a Christian, does God promise you health and wealth and prosperity? As we continue our series through the, the letter to the Romans, in chapter 8, we'll see what God says to us through the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 8, we're going to focus on verses 18 through 30. Um, I'll read all the way through and then we'll go back and look at it piece by piece and see if we can answer this question. So Romans chapter 8, I'll start reading in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what are the sufferings of this present time? There are two particular ways that Christians suffer in this life. One, our first one, is the same general suffering that all people deal with. Universal suffering, we can call it. Whether they follow Christ or not. It's the general suffering that creation itself has been subjected to as a result of God's judgment. Do you ever ask yourself, why do weeds grow better in my garden than what I intentionally planted? That's a valid question. You Maybe because you're like me and have no idea what you're doing when it comes to trying to grow tomatoes and peppers and all that other stuff. But even so... The real culprit is the fact that we live in a cursed environment. I mean, that's at least my go-to excuse. Now, y'all know I'm from Texas, but I assure you I'm not just singling out Southwest Virginia when I say that our environment is cursed. At least stuff does grow here, you know, because it actually rains and isn't a thousand degrees. No matter where you are, though, it's hard work. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes knowledge and skill. And even after all of that, you're still not guaranteed that it'll all come out the way that you intend. Now, we all know about our friend Paul. He's just a month older than me. He's got four kids, one on the way. He's intelligent, works hard, works out regularly, loves his family, loves the Lord, gives generously, cares deeply for his friends, and he just found out, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, that he has 
cancer. Right now, he's getting intensive treatment for a disease that he did nothing to cause. None of the choices that he made in his life would have changed the fact that right now he has to fight against his own body if he wants to live long enough to see grandkids, if he wants to live long enough to see Tennessee football actually become relevant again or insert whatever poor sports team you want to, like the Texas Rangers. Look at verses 19 through 22 in our text. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. God has put our world under a curse. The air we breathe, the ground we walk on, the water we drink, it's all poisoned. And creation itself knows it. We're told in places like Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. But we also see from our text that it cries out from the pain that it's in. It's suffering. It suffers because of our sin. God has judged our sin, and in that judgment, he cursed creation. It not only suffers because of God's judgment of our sin, but also because of how we treat it in our sin. We use and abuse God's world for our own advantages. Just look at the pollution in India. Look at what used to be the rainforest in Brazil. It cries out in anguish, waiting It anticipates the future, knowing that what it currently endures will not last forever. The pain and death and suffering it endures will come to an end. There will be new life. And that's the the beauty of childbirth, right? What Paul talks about. So much pain and anguish. Unless, of course, you get an epidural, right? Thanks, science. But naturally, so much pain that ends in what? Life. New life. The Bible speaks plainly in both the Old and New Testaments about a new heavens and a new earth. When the lamb lays down with the lion, when a kid plays with a snake unharmed, when the sufferings that we all endure will one day be wiped away. Creation is on the same path that we as Christians are on. Look at verses 23 through 25. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Just as creation is waiting for final and full redemption, so too We who are in Christ are waiting patiently for the redemption of our bodies. We who have put our trust in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope that although we have willingly and deliberately sinned against a loving God, he has shown his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The hope that Christ died in order to take on God's wrath that we deserved and now 
imputes to us his own righteousness. The hope that because of our faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that God will one day give us a new body that is not enslaved to sin. The hope that one day we will live in peace in the presence of the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you have this hope? Do you have this hope? If you do not, then I beg you to consider surrendering surrendering your life to Christ even right now, today. Do not keep living for yourself. Lying to yourself that one day it'll all get better just because. The Bible is quite clear that if you are not in Christ, then you have no hope either in this life or in the life that is to come. We will all be raised. But if you do not have this hope, then you will not be counted among the sons of God. You will not share in the inheritance that is being offered to you. You will not bask in the light of the glory of God. Instead, you'll be thrown into an eternal hell where all you'll get is everything that you ever wanted, minus the grace of God, which means... Nothing good at all. Put your faith and trust in Jesus today. But I'll warn you, as Paul warns us in our text, that this is a hope that we cannot see. Otherwise, it wouldn't be hope at all. It's a hope that's born out of suffering. Paul's already mentioned this earlier in Romans chapter 5, starting halfway through verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What Paul mentions there briefly in chapter 5, he explains here in chapter 8. Look at verses 26 and 27. In our text. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We need the Spirit to intercede for us because He knows that we as Christians suffer in a way that the rest of the world does not. We suffer because as Christians, we seek after the will of God. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that's not the only part of God's will, but it is a part of God's will that we explicitly play a part in. The second way that we suffer is in our battle against the flesh. We suffer in our battle against the flesh. Or, put another way, we suffer in our battle for sanctification. For the last little while, in chapter 7, Paul has been talking about how he himself... And Christians everywhere, we've said this the last couple weeks, are inundated, plagued by sin. Even though inwardly we have died to sin, our mortal bodies are still infected. 
And the reality that I want to make clear today is that as a Christian, you should be suffering more than non-Christians because you are fighting against sin. At least we ought to be. We are fighting for the will of God to be done in our lives. We are fighting for sanctification. We are fighting to present our members as slaves to righteousness and not as slaves to sin. That's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks in chapters 6 and 7. And we know that it's easier to sin than to not sin. It's easier to give in to temptation than to struggle against it. Any addict knows this. My grandma passed away 20 years ago. Before then, I think maybe even before I was born, quit smoking, just cold turkey. As I think before the days of nicotine patches and gum and whatever in the world else they have available now. But she did it. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. My grandpa, on the other hand, he did not quit smoking. He didn't even try to quit. So guess what he dealt with through the years, besides yellow walls? COPD, heart attacks, breathing treatments, inhalers. Rather than fighting against the addiction, he fought the symptoms of the addiction. It was an easier path for him. Just deal with the issues as they come instead of fighting it head on at the source. Are we not prone to that same way of living in our sin? Just deal with the effects instead of fighting it at its core. Our body, our flesh, is addicted to sin. It craves sin. It longs for sin. Our flesh is broken. It was broken before we were Christians, and it's still broken after we become Christians. So either we can give in to its brokenness, throw our hands up in the air, and say, what's the point? Or we can fight. Here's the choice you have. You can either pull out all of your troops and give in to the enemy, hashtag Biden, or you can stay and fight. You can continue to build defenses. You can train your body to fight. And guess what happens? You'll fail over and over and over again. Another 20 years goes by and the enemy still hasn't been defeated. You'll have made mistakes along the way. You gave into that temptation. You struggled with anxiety and doubt. But you will also experience something amazing if you have the right perspective. And here's the right perspective. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the only one who lived in this body of flesh and did not give in to sin. We have a faithful high priest who has been tempted in every way as we have been, yet he remained without sin. None of us have ever come close to the level of suffering that Jesus endured. Think about this for a moment. Jesus suffered more than us because he actually fought sin all the way. He is the only one who knows what it's like to fight the battle against sin all the way. The first time I heard this was when we read one of our books of the month, Mere Christianity, a year and a half ago. But let me read to you this quote from C.S. Lewis. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it. 
not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist, C.S. Lewis says. And do you know what Jesus experienced alongside those temptations? An insane amount of suffering for his father, for you, for me, for all of his creation. So as you struggle against your sin, you look to Jesus. And when you think your faith may fail, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold you fast. How can we be sure of this? How can I be so confident in this? First off, because that's what the text says. We looked at this for a second last week. I didn't read it yet today, but look at the second half of verse 17. It says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. in order that we may also be glorified with him, provided we suffer with him. He is with us in our suffering. Because he himself suffered. And second off, because he has not left us to ourselves, but he has given us his spirit. That's what this whole chapter is about. It's about the spirit. That's especially... What verses 26 and 27 say, which we already read, but let's look at them again. Because I think it's important for us to see this well. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is in you, Christian, to struggle with you, to suffer with you, to comfort you, to be with you. The Spirit is there to speak to God when all we have left are painful groanings that words cannot do justice, when we have no idea how to articulate our feelings, when we have no idea how to respond with words to the pain and suffering that we endure as Christians who are fighting against our sin. You also suffer. We suffer because of what we know but we can't see. Because you know how things used to be before sin. And you know how things will be after sin is erased. Before Genesis 3, everything was good. Really good. And in the middle of Revelation, everything goes back to being the best. But in between, in between Genesis and Revelation, that's the world we live in. That's the world we grow up in. That's the world we get married in. That's the world we raise our kids in. That's the world 
our spouse dies in. This is the world where our dreams come to life, but they always seem to be just beyond our grasp. Where we have a vision of how we think things ought to be, but then COVID. We think we know what God intends for us, but then your best friend suddenly passes away. We think we have some things figured out, but then all of a sudden we can't stop fighting with our spouse. Our kids won't listen. Our boss won't get off our backs. All of a sudden we get the job we've waited for, but it isn't all that fulfilling. Friends forsake you and your health fades away. And by five o'clock, you don't have any energy to keep doing the same old stuff. Too often, we go about our business acting as if things shouldn't be as they are. And to an extent, that is true. Life should not be this way. God did not design the world to be this way. But our sin and God's judgment of our sin has made the world this way. And one day, when the sons of God are revealed, when Christ comes back to gather up his bride, the church, then, then, then the creation will no longer be subjected to futility. No longer will this world fight against us. No longer will there be death or pain or drought or famine or corona or the Yankees or the Cowboys or the Lakers or the Taliban or America. Friends, we look forward to that day. We wait for it with eager anticipation, with expectant hope. We pray for that day to come. We sing, come Lord Jesus. We pray, come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, until that time comes, we have been called by God. We have been called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 28 and 29 in our text. And we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We have been called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Did you know that's why pastors, church teachers exist? Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Why do we preach and teach? Because we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we want you to be built up in unity. Because we want to present you as mature men and women, Christians, who understand how God has revealed himself. Christians who experience a vibrant relationship with their Father who is in heaven. Men and women and children 
who passionately experience a growing relationship with the very God who has saved them and raised them to walk in newness of life. Christians who understand their part in this war. So, let me ask you, what do you think verse 28 means? It's a popular verse in Christian culture. What do you think verse 28 means? I'll read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, from all that we've been looking at today, does this verse mean that things in this life will get better for you? Does this mean that things will work out in your life? Should you claim this verse as a promise that God will lift you up out of the suffering that you are currently enduring? No. No, when we read this verse in context, we understand that it means that in the midst of your suffering, God is preparing for you a glory that will be revealed in the next life. Not in this life, in the next life. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Though you are not able to see it, God has enabled you and me to know that glory awaits those who are in Christ, those who suffer with Christ, those whom God foreknew and predestined and called. Look at how Paul started our text in verse 18, and then how he finishes it in verse 30. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The glory that is to be revealed. Friends, we are called to suffer well. Because we know that glory awaits. So how exactly can we suffer well? If you haven't been listening for the last 30 minutes, then I'd offer three particular ways that we've basically already touched on. Ways that we can suffer well. And these relate to our past, our present, and our future. The first one. Remember the hope in which you were saved. Remember the hope in which you were saved. The hope that accompanies your suffering. Remember the hope in which you were saved. The second thing, know that the Spirit intercedes for you in your suffering. Know that the Spirit right now intercedes for you in your suffering. The third thing, in the future, we look forward to future glory. We look forward to future glory. The suffering that we endure now may be great, 
but the glory that is to be revealed is even greater. Does God promise you health and wealth and prosperity? Will you suffer less than a non-Christian? No. I think you'll actually suffer more. But you have a hope in Christ and the Spirit of God and the promise of future glory to keep you steadfast in your suffering. So take heart. Do not lose heart and suffer well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word from you. A difficult word, but a word that does give us hope. A word that lets us know that we are not alone in our sufferings, but that you, God, have sent your spirit to be with us, to take residence in us, to intercede for us, to work with us, to work for us, to work on our behalf when we have no idea what to say. Your spirit is there. God, help us not to depend on our own selves, on our own strength, on our own devices, on our own understanding, but to trust completely in you. We thank you for the promises found here. Though they're difficult, we are not left without hope. And so it's in that hope that we pray to you, that we come to you, that we have confidence to know that you listen, that you care, that you are with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.